This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute... Something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Back to the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 228 for December MMXXII, Back to the Oracle's 13th anniversary. Back to Oracle is brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. 
That's right, the 13th anniversary, and also a big happy holidays to all of my listeners out there. Hopefully you are enjoying whatever weather you have chosen to experience. I am finally experiencing maybe some 20 degrees. That's that's how I like it. Maybe there'll be some snow for Christmas. I would love that. But here we are. So I hope you have a wonderful time. So I actually don't have any comic reviews that I'm going to be doing. I do have some quickies. But I thought since this is the end of 2022, and by all accounts, 2022 is perhaps the worst year in my life that I have experienced while living on planet Earth, that I would go through the things that I found to be the best or my favorite in certain categories. So taking a page from IGN's uh, number one or top blank of 2022. And these were things that kept me going, things that brought me enjoyment. I've talked about many of them, so I don't really need to harp on them for long. But Uh, There might be a couple that I have yet to mention that I might talk about a bit. So here they are, the favorites of 2022. My top video game for 2022, even though I have yet to complete it. And I play it infrequently because I just want to be in the best mindset to actually enjoy the wonders of this video game is God of War Ragnarok, a sequel to the revised, I guess, or reimagined God of War just where he is in another location and just seeing what is Kratos like as a father how does he act with the son and he's still that gruff man that we have known from the original God of Wars and all of their sequels but he has grown so much because I feel like in all the original God of Wars where he's mostly in Sparta or in Greece. He is pretty one-dimensional, always on a path of vengeance, and lessons are hard to get through his thick skull. But here we, we see him love, and he has his own sort of distinct way of loving, but we do see that and, and being a guidepost and a father figure for his son. And like I said, I haven't finished it. I'm actually a bit nervous to see what they're going to do with Kratos just because of a particular prophecy that we have seen at the end of the last game as well as it has been brought forth in about the midpoint of this particular game. But just, yeah, you know, one of the bright spots, I think, of this game that I really loved is Kratos was helping his son do something. It was a side quest and Atreus was confused. You know, why are you doing this? You don't normally want us to go off and you want us to always stay on the mission. Why are we helping this creature? And Kratos was spouting something and Atreus just was not understanding. And Mimir, who is always on Kratos's belt, says, you know, he just wants to spend time with you, lad. And basically because they don't know what's coming, Ragnarok is on the way and everything. And so just he's not able to verbalize everything, but he has grown so much. And I, I love this series. It was, you know, I have a long history with it first mature game that I convinced my parents to let me get because of of the mythology in it. And then this is just, it's taking it to another level, which is great. 
my top comic book of 2022 or favorite comic book of 2022 is definitely Nightwing by Tom Taylor and Bruno Redondo. I wish it were Batgirls, but it does not bring as much enjoyment. That book doesn't bring as much enjoyment as Nightwing, which is just warm and cuddly every time I read it, whether or not Barbara is in it or not. And just, I feel like so pitch perfect for the character and beautiful as well. And, and choreographed some of those scenes. And I mean, who can forget that one issue that is just one scene. If you pull the issue apart and put it together, it will go across your bedroom walls. My favorite book of 2022 is Papillon by Henri Charrière, and I covered that with Tom over at Required Reading, read it on my trip in Europe, and just was so, it's so adventurous. You get to see parts of the world that you might not normally have seen. It does take place, or is published in 69, but it covers a 14-year period between 1931 and 1945. You see that penal system and how bad it is, and, and that's only recently been changing or tension is brought to it. So that was also interesting. And yeah, obviously, there is some debate and controversy in regards to whether this is fantastical or it is nonfiction, but I will take it as it was given to me and, and seeing that it is a memoir and just I I was just so engaged and enthralled with it. My favorite anime from 2022 is definitely Romantic Killer. Of course, I think I talked about that last episode and just the fact that Anzu loves romance games, but when it comes into real life, it's just like she doesn't have time for it. And then her life turns into a cliched rom-com and just all these things that you wouldn't expect to happen in real life start happening to her which and it's it's just really quite funny but it also takes some dark turns and i think it does have some more adult themes of objectification and societal pressures and consent things like that so i do recommend that favorite album of 2022 is definitely a touch of the beat gets you up on your feet gets you up and then out in the sun by Ali and AJ their first full-length album in over 10 years and it is just from start to finish is just amazing and it's just been I mean they would they would certainly say that it was a long time coming and and everything leading up to that their EPs that were coming out and their singles were just amazing 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 and yeah, it's just so smart, and it has this sort of South Beach or, or California feel, and Beach Boys, and just some great themes. Ah, oh, I don't know. It was so good. And I would also say that the concert experience, going to see them play, and mostly it was a Touch of the Beat tour, so mostly from that album, and being front row and being able to see them was amazing. So definitely favorite part there. My favorite song, I think, from 2022, if I didn't pick it from that album, is something that I can listen to on repeat. I have it on a playlist on my iPod that I listen to. I ended up getting his actual album because I had listened to, of course, that this song and then another one that came out and I thought I'm going to give this artist a try. Sam Fender is the artist and his song is 17 Going Under. And it's very much a story. I feel like we don't have many storytellers. You know, you listen to something like songs are about something, but they don't necessarily tell you a story, I think. And 
just from the beginning and, and how this song drives you until the very end, really drives you until the bridge because it just starts off, it's guitar, guitar and vocals, then drums come in, then sax. So it's like huge and it's just driving, driving, driving. And then it pauses and we just, we've got that bridge. And then as it ends with just really vocals and guitar and just these themes of nostalgia and anger and regret and wishing we could go back and do something in the past or change something in the past that we really can't and, and pretending to be someone that we're not in the past and kind of living from that experience. And yeah, what is it? Being a teenager is is difficult. But just I really like the song. I like his voice. Kind of reminds me of a a boss. Kind of has a feel of the national as well some of his stylings, maybe Tom Taylor. So just like, yeah, a good storyteller. I really recommend that listening to that particular song. Favorite TV series is hard for me. And I almost don't want to say anything because I feel like there's just something there's been something there in the back of my brain of what my actual favorite was for the past couple weeks thinking about and I can't, it's not really coming to mind. I did write down Ms. Marvel from Disney Plus, because I just thought that was so lovely. And besides how she got her power, everything seemed very much in line with the character and and she's just cute and precious and being such a fangirl within that show is amazing and also showing a culture that I think people are xenophobic about and obviously that comic series had issues from people so you know presenting it potentially in this really innocuous guise is something that we could use in order to present like hey you know all muslim people are not terrorists like here is you know we have various people just like we have various uh, white people black people christians atheists like all those sorts of things Uh, so i feel like it's a good stepping into the culture that is respectful of it and then could hopefully maybe pull some people away from having extreme opinions about the muslim faith and muslim people so maybe maybe that was my favorite i really liked from scratch i thought that was a really good adaptation of the memoir i don't know there have been i feel like i've burned through several normal people i think is a good contender so it's hard for me to lay something down but i'll at least say ms marvel might be (laughs) might be the top there definitively though definitely and definitively my top tv episode that i watched this year did come out in 2020 but i only watched it this year is from euphoria and it is rue's special and this is basically post rue being left at the train station by jules and she's quote-unquote quote celebrating Christmas with her sponsor Ali and she has relapsed so she's talking about that she's talking about her maybe not wanting to live so this might be the end for her and then we get to know more about her sponsor and his journey his rough life and his life with his children and um, not much of a relationship there which she ends up throwing back in his face in season two and then also connecting on a racial level and it's just these two characters in this and and 
conversing at times, long monologues by both of them at times, and just in a diner, the two of them talking. And it is just, it's amazing and, and just so authentic and realistic. So definitely my favorite episode, even though it is, it's hard to watch. My favorite movie of 2022 is CODA, C-O-D-A, a.k.a. Yeah, a Child of Deaf Adults, which came out in August 2021, won the Academy Award for Best Picture in 2022, and it follows Ruby who is the only hearing member of a deaf family from Gloucester, Massachusetts. She's 17. She works early mornings on a boat with her brother and father before school. And then she later on joins her high school's choir because she has a crush on this guy, but she actually has this great voice. And then she's pulled in two different directions about, you know, family duty versus what she wants. Some classical themes there, to be sure, but just a really beautiful film and some heartfelt moments, obviously, some really fun moments that you would not expect. And the acting is great from everyone involved, and you have some big names. And I feel like up and coming as well in the deaf community. And I mean, how often, honestly, do members of the deaf community get opportunities to have such meaty material or any material at all and I yeah I just love this film it was my contender it was the one that I was super stubborn about because I do a bet with Heath Bar about and we try to pick the most accurate Academy Award winners and he I think went with Year of the Dog and I knew that that was a big contender but because I did not like Year of the Dog I was like if that movie wins I'll be so upset so I stubbornly circled Coda and then Coda won and I was it was great but yeah I loved it I've watched it twice I'd like to certainly watch again it's probably one of those films that I can kind of pass around and watch with different people I did find somebody who did not like it which is crazy I'm going to see her soon so i'm going to accost her i think she called it something i can't remember it was like too high school drama -y. i can't remember i think like her her parents walked out and i thought you're kidding me like your mom sat through book smart and thought it was super dumb but she couldn't sit through coda like what is going on so i'll have to see what's up with that favorite sports moment of 2022 is definitely the England Lionesses winning the Euros. Lots of my girls from Manchester City squad were on that team. My favorite player, Ellen White, was on that team. And just being the home nation and winning it is beautiful, especially after some of the heartbreak that they've been having in regards to, I mean, the U.S. women have, have beaten them. And it's always hard to watch, you know, these sports people uh break down you know they get really close again those semifinals or those finals and then don't make it but to have them win was amazing super bummed that ellen white announced her retirement shortly thereafter but she's going to be a mom which is great and she had s such a great and starred career and to end on that i think is is such a such a bang um and now just watching the the young women and, and the up-and-comers and on that team and then on the Man City squad as well has been a lot of fun. And my top, figured I'd end with this, my top social, political, or socio-political 
event of 2022. I've got two of them. First of all, it's equal pay for women's soccer finally coming on February 22nd, 2022. It had been a long battle, but finally... The U.S. Soccer Federation agreed to a landmark $24 million agreement, which will see tens of millions of dollars in back pay owed to female players. And this is, if you were to just think about what had happened, I I talked about this, I think, maybe on a Quinoa episode in terms of maybe Megan Rapinoe as, as someone that I looked up to and I appreciate American women received a 110,000 bonus for winning the 2019 World Cup, but the U.S. men would have received $407,000 had they won in 2018. So that's just like that discrepancy. And just going through, I highly recommend, I think it's on HBO, the um, LFG, that particular documentary just to get a sense and you have many different voices on there because you have people like Alex Morgan and Megan Rapinoe who are big names but they also have so much sponsorship that even if they're not receiving this money which of course is a moot point now but when they weren't receiving it they were getting money and I couldn't say how much because probably Alex Morgan with the sponsorship for somebody, let's say Nike, might not have been getting as much as like um, Lionel Messi or something like that. But they were having like two jobs. But then you have other people on that documentary as well who were talking about, yeah, we had like a single mom on there and saying like I had to have a second job because I wasn't getting paid for this World Cup. I couldn't get paid a lot for being a professional soccer player, so I had to pick up another job. So just having that, and and that's not, the reality of the men's side. So I'm super happy about that. And then I am also happy, though it's kind of weird to say this because it's very damaging, but hopefully what the outcome of it will be great. And now, hey, there's going to be a reckoning is the Sally Yates report. And all of this will come from ussoccer.com. Not many of you, if, if you don't follow US soccer, or any of that might be aware, they might not be aware of all this. So I might talk a bit more about this. But US soccer retains Sally Q. Yates, who was a former US Deputy Attorney General and King and Spalding in October 2021 to conduct an independent investigation into allegations of past abuse behavior and sexual misconduct in women's professional soccer to gain a full understanding of the factors that allowed it to occur and to identify meaningful recommendations that will help prevent similar abuse and misconduct from taking place in the future. Yates and her team were given full autonomy, access, and the necessary resources to follow the facts and evidence wherever they led. And that report is 319 pages long. And there, even before the Sally Yates report, we were getting, depending on the team that you were following, so I, my top team is the Pride. They're going through some some struggles, unfortunately, and I lost my favorite player. Was She left somewhere else. But, you know, you watch as coaches kind of filter through or managers you're hearing um, players and and coaches having relationships and different things like that so you you hear and see these things in news blasts if you're following these teams but now like this report is kind of collating like look at all of this actually really abusive behavior that is is coming through 
The report's findings focus heavily on three coaches in the NWSL, which is the National Women's Soccer League, who have been accused of serious misconduct and abuse. We've got former Racing Louisville coach Chrissy Hawley, former Portland Thorns coach Paul Riley, and former Chicago Red Stars coach Rory Dames. U.S. soccer is committed to thoroughly addressing the report's recommendations. In the most immediate term, the U.S. soccer will establish a new Office of Participant Safety to oversee U.S. soccer's conduct policies and reporting mechanisms, publish soccer records from Safe Sports Centralized Disciplinary Database to publicly identify individuals in our sport who have been disciplined, suspended, or banned, and mandate a uniform minimum standard for background checks for all U.S. soccer members at every level of the game, including youth soccer to comport with the USOPC standards. And that is one of the big things. There was actually a press conference. I think the women, the national team was going to play England, actually, right before this, right before Sally, yes, right before the Sally Yates report came out. US and England were going to play a friendly. And I remember uh, Becky Sauerbrunn, hashtag Wahoo and shoot, uh, can't remember her name, was also at the press conference. And they basically spoke about this, especially because Becky was on Portland. She was on that team. And then U.S., uh, or sorry, England also, they had the coach. And I don't know if it was Beth Mead or Captain Leah Williamson. And Serena is the coach. I can't. Yeah, but they also spoke about that, which was really interesting. And I think they did something special before the game. But anyway, yeah, so there's a press conference and they're talking about that. And like, what immediate actions would you take? It was like, you need to fire these people. You need to fire, you need to potentially fire the owners. Because the thing was that a lot of people knew what was going on, but they, you know, might not have been listening to the players. And they were more worried about kind of the bottom line and and protecting the boys club and the men and not the players. And that's scary for adults. But then when you think about, because that last one right at every level of the game, we're protecting, including youth soccer, this stuff trickles down. And who's to say really that it hasn't already happened? But then, you know, you're spoiling this love of the game because you've got this abuse. And and it wasn't only sexual abuse. I will say like it's toxic behavior, period. How coaches were referring to players could be racist remarks. Uh, gaslighting. Yes, there is that the the assault component to it comments on weight and things like that and so if you think about any of those categories being like girls young girls who love the game and this is happening number one they might stop loving the game and number two think that this might be a it's an adult right it's my trusted adult it's my coach i I trust him for the game why wouldn't i trust him or her for something else so it's good that it's it's certainly every level i guess i mean i recommend i mean i guess it depends on if you're interested in soccer or football but i i think that this is just something that is important for any sport i think it could be men and women's sports i think it could be any sport and just how gosh it's it seems like it's all connected you know you take away soccer and you almost have hollywood too with the with the me too movement but just like the silence and not protecting players so sally yates that sally yates report awful right but so glad that it has come out and i'm so happy for the changes and 
you know, the, these uh, victims or we'll say survivors, I think, and and just that they were willing how brave they were to come out and make those statements, even though people may not have been backing them. And then some of these spokeswomen, too, that have been taking the charge and, and trying to protect their team has been really wonderful to see. If we band together, you know, as, as a nation and, you know, even smaller just as a womanhood and, and protect each other and strengthen each other, I think, is a beautiful thing. So here's hoping for 2023. I think I'll skip the... Find Your Joy segment, if only because, you know, all that was basically what I have been doing in 2022 as I wrap it up and trying to find some semblance of joy. So I'll just quickly go through these quickies. And next time, yeah, we'll get back to the actual program of looking at Babs as she is in Birds of Prey and Batgirl. So Detective Comics 779, April 2003 is the cover date. From the publisher synopsis, one of Batman's oldest foes is laid to rest, but while the Gotham underworld pays its respects, Batman scrambles to prevent the killer from striking again. This is Dead Reckoning Part 3. Bruce takes Barbara to a play to meet someone and get information about an actor named Paul. Her wheelchair has handles and he pushes her. I didn't notice that. So that was a red flag for sure. Then have Detective Comics 782, July 2003 is the cover date. And both of these were written by Ed Brubaker. The thrilling conclusion of Dead Reckoning, which is part six of six, Batman is in a desperate race to stop the charlatan. They finally meet at Arkham Asylum, where the Dark Knight and Jim Gordon must save their old friend Harvey Dent from the monster he created. Plus, someone has caught on to the Dark Knight's annual visits to Crime Alley. It's up to Alfred, Oracle, Robin, Batgirl, and Nightwing to save Batman's secret identity. Oracle does do some research for Batman to find some abandoned factories, and then that end point is basically people playing some dress-up in order to get this guy who's like starting to put one and one together. <laughs> to prevent him from finding out that Bruce and Batman are laying roses in Crime Alley. Then we have Detective Comics 788, January 2004 is the cover date. This writer is Paul Bowles. The Randori Stone Part 1. Two years ago, Eddie Hurst was sentenced to death for a trio of murders he didn't commit. But something's happened to Eddie Hurst. He's gotten stronger and wants revenge on everyone who had a role in sending him down the river. Plus the conclusion to the dog catcher. Oracle helps lead Batman to different victims on a list. So Oracle doing Oracle things. And finally, Detective Comics 790, March 2004 is the cover date. Writer Anderson Gabrick. Batgirl and Batman, a.k.a. Cass as Batgirl, descend on Gotham to break up a murderous drug ring. Will the two most tight-lipped heroes... Oh, gosh. Will the two most tight-lipped heroes in the DCU form a bond? And... In the Taylor Part 2, the weapon supplier's daughter is held hostage by a man wearing a very familiar suit. I find that very interesting. Just it's 2004. Shouldn't they have already formed a bond? Where is this writer? Where is this synopsizer? Apparently, they don't read the actual books that these characters are in. Well, Batman admits to using Batgirl, which I find very interesting and hypocritical. Well, I guess it's good that he finally admits that I was using you. Batgirl also comments on the way he was punishing someone to get information. So he's going a bit far. She's calling him out. She asks him what's going on and also brings up Stephanie. We see Barbara working out, which is always nice to see. And she calls Bruce to check in on him and even offers an ear if he ever wants to talk, which that's always Barbara. People are always leaning on her. 
And then later, Batgirl and Batman go to Jason's grave for his, meaning Jason's birthday, and we see why Batman was so upset. And maybe, just maybe, we can understand why he is slash was so hard on Stephanie. And it was just, it was interesting for Cass, or to watch Cass hear about Jason for the first time and kind of put all of that together. It's also interesting to have this issue almost out of context with what's been going on in the back row book. It's like someone did not read what was going on in the back row book when this was coming out, but there you go. If there had been one to actually review, it would have been that one, but I, to be honest, I was so emotionally tired and fraught from that back row issue that I raged about that I, I cared not to tackle this. Okay, well... The last thing for this section is listener emails. Mail time. Mail time. Mail time. Mail here. Here's the mail. It never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. I will begin with the comments from YouTube, which actually I got a lot of comments, and I'll shout out to a hero soon. Uh, So first, from Bagels After Midnight, he says, Tears. You have reduced me to tears. I believe that Professor Junior was the first to mention Girls' Generation to you, but we did watch their latest music video, Forever One, together in the very room where Toad wrapped lightly upon your racket-clutching knuckles. I don't like you mentioning any of those things personally, and you know I did not like... Mario Tennis. Anyways, I may not fully understand the rules of, quote, this one goes out to, but I assume the one refers to the amount of songs to be played, one, and not the audience to whom it is dedicated. So what I'm hearing is basically about a bunch of whininess and pettiness. Yes, this one goes out to usually just as one song. So I understand that when I had repeated songs going out to Professor Coca Jr. and made you upset. But In my defense, I did say that was probably the last one that I would shout out to her, so we should be okay. Uh Aha. So this is my my hero. My hero is Enigma. So Enigma basically did all the research that I was going to do and then forgot slash didn't have time to do before I started recording. So big thanks. So... Number 39 through 50, or issues 39 through 50, I see as one big story arc concluding here. Cass hits the stage starting in issue 39 when she starts feeling things. Emotions she never knew she had before. She tried them with Connor, and it didn't work out, but she still wanted to be friendly. Then Black Wind, but he sacrificed himself before things escalated. In both instances, Bruce was basically a dick to Cassandra. He told Superman to make sure Connor never saw Cassandra again. Black Wind he was constantly aggressive toward, then the incident with the human traffickers. I see Cass at this point was wondering, is Bruce doing this all so he could have her? Which leads into possibly the moment in issue 50 where even Barbara mentions, are you going to punch him or kiss him? I think by the point near the end, Cass realized Bruce's feelings toward her weren't sexual but parental. Given her screwed upbringing, screwed, yeah, screwed up upbringing, she couldn't tell the difference between the two until the end of 50. I cannot explain Bruce's own actions in the save one thing. This Batman era as a whole was never good for Bruce, as this is the schemer era, which is nuts given this was right after the Batman is the actual me, Bruce Wayne is the mask phase, which resulted in Bruce Wayne murderer slash fugitive. 
Just a few months later, he would pit Stephanie and Tim against one another just so he could get Tim back as Robin, who had quit. That's not to mention the stuff going on between him and Babs, which culminated in war games as well. DC would later retcon Bruce's paranoid actions as a result of the tampering, but still, there's nothing to excuse Bruce here at all. I know, never. However, (laughs) I like in this fight between Cass and Bruce to Obi-Wan and Anakin in episode 3. Bruce is trying to pick his moment while Cass is the aggressor in this fight. The thing is, they both had to be hopped up on drugs, but the blowing up the bridge snapped both of them back to reality. It's the only explanation. The whole Bruce Cass thing isn't something Hark started, though. I forget the exact issue, but I want to say it's in Gotham Knights prior to this. There's an issue where Cass is hitting a punching bag while talking to Barbara about Bruce. Babs notes the tone Cass uses while she speaks of Bruce as a crush and teases her. Whoa! I must not have read that issue. Or if I have, I must have blocked that out of my mind. Cass got really flustered from that. So there is a grain to this. <gasps> oh, my. To, to this truth, I guess, starting there, unfortunately. Rox's era on Batgirl is weird baggage. Most of it hasn't aged well. Given the nature of why he left the book, i.e. finding out what will happen to Stephanie Brown, and that he has to write Barbara being nasty to cast herself, ooh, I truly wonder how much is him and how much is editorial. Horrocks did not have a good experience on this book, but he did enjoy Cass. He went to do indie comics after this run, which broke him. I asked Enigma if the indie comics broke Horrocks, uh, but Enigma said, no, I meant DC broke him. He went back to the indie scene and never looked back. Anytime he talks about his time at DC Comics, i.e. this run, it's usually disgruntled. I responded, uh, I see. He and Devin both, it seems, as a shame. While I may be critical, I do still respect the art, of the artistry of writing and things like that. And then Enigma responded, both Brubaker and Tim left with Devin being vocal, but staying until she was axed with the Batwoman ongoing. That was never published. And Donovan was uh, cringing from my comments about Nightwing. He didn't write anything in, though. He did say he was going to. He did say that I was a bit flippant and how I was talking about Dick getting raped, just kind of like if I was shrugging. And that was certainly not my intention. It was more just like, I guess I'm flummoxed just of like people in my observation that people get all up in arms if a man is sexually assaulted, but women are getting sexually assaulted all the time. And so it's just like, well, yeah, that, you know, that's just the way that it goes. And so I, I guess I perhaps it was my anger, frustration, resentment that that is the way it is. I think that we should be up in arms at all times when anyone is assaulted whatsoever or treated as if they are not a human being. I did, oh, Shayna popped in using a different medium here, and she said, I'm not that lucky to own a PS5, just lucky enough to get a good deal on an Xbox Series S and to not be in grad school anymore. Hang in there. I am, uh, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll see. You know, I went to GameStop today to get my nephew a Steam gift card, and they were trying to get me to do a, a pro pro membership and i thought well no i'm with gamefly right now which saves me a lot of money but at one point i wonder i wonder when that'll be the ps5 what actually i know when it'll be it's going to be when something comes out that i can't say no to i have a feeling it might be spider-man 2 marvel spider-man 2 but i'm not sure and 
Yeah, that's probably when it'll force me. But for right now, I'm still I'm still good. God of War Ragnarok came. I think I've said this before. God of War Ragnarok came up piece four. Resident Evil Four is coming out. Um, so I'm okay right now. I'm okay. Uh, then we have part two, and Enigma comes back. Actually, Cluemaster is the villain for the next two arcs. The first with the Batgirls getting their mind switched into the other's body and having to deal with the other's parental figure, Shiva for Steph, cast for Cluemaster. The second arc is cast searching for Cluemaster, who has Steph. Mad Hatter is just the cause of the body swap for two issues. Either this person has some insider knowledge or they just read the synopses because I don't do that. Or I was just behind. But Enigma knows what's going on, I have to say. I don't know who this is, but I hope that they, they stick with me. And Enigma, this is what I'm talking about. This is why Enigma is my hero on this episode because... So I was thinking about the, the Mr. Fun. So the Riddler figured out Mr. Fun was the villain, but decided rather than give the information to the police, he had Killer Moth plant clues and let Mr. Fun have his er fun still. But Cass figured to skip solving the riddles and just go straight to the source of who was giving Moth the clues. I think the split happened for three reasons. Number one, Mr. Fun was basically a villain Cass fought, and so she had to be the one to take him down. Number two, Riddler is friends with Clue Master to set up his return for the next arc, along with paying homage to their fighting way back in Robin between these two. Number three, the gals grappled via Roof's last issue to the location. They had no bikes. I know. I know. But remember that time in Batman Family, I think it was, where the bikes came to them? So, not them, them, but Batgirl and Robin. So, perhaps that technology still exists. So, Cass taking Killer Moss flight pack does make sense. More so when they know where Grace is at since flight is quicker than driving. But is it quicker when you don't know how to fly very well? Mr. Fun is an obscure early 2000s villain. He first appeared in Batman Family number 6 and be both Nightwing and Cass the following issue. So it took 20 years, but she got a win over him. So it was. It was. That was the thing that I was thinking about once I realized he was in that limited series that I had recently covered. But I didn't go back to see which person they had fought. So he had beaten Cass. So... This one was a close call. I guess I still wonder. What do you think, Enigma? Do you feel like Mr. Fun is as capable as Cass? Should he have beaten her in Batman Family number six? And should it have been such a close call in this one? I don't know. Donovan would say no. And I think the final one is Batman Urban Legends number eight, Fear State tie-in. Renee, when she just became commish, goes to Kate after videos are uploaded online of Cass murdering people. Oh, I remember that. And another saying Batman is dead. Renee knows the videos are fake but wants to know the nature of it. So they have been together. Uh, They've been in the same sphere, physical sphere, before. I guess I just wonder what is the state. Are there, there, I guess they're just friends, but they... Yeah, I just don't know what the the status of their relationship is. And then I think I just have one email from my Earth 2 BFF, Mm -hmm. Shayna. BFF Stella, I don't know if I just can't remember what happens in Batgirls Month to Month because of how busy I've been the last few months, or if plot threads were just invented on the spot in number 12. I think I'm coming to the conclusion that this book isn't for me. I at least want to read through the annual, but after that I can't make any promises of whether I keep with this book or not. I might try to reread the last six issues again and all together to see if it helps me make sense of what happened in 12. I tried to get her to stay with me, but I'm losing people on this book here. To be fair, I like what Clunin and Conrad set up for Grace and Steph character-wise in this issue, but I wasn't sure where any of it came from. I like the idea of Grace coming face-to-face 
with her drinking, but we never saw it affecting her negatively in the past or something she felt any shame around. So why is she convinced now to stop? Because some rando named Mr. Fun called her a boozer? Am I missing something? Please tell me if I am. Hey, I'm not. I also have questions about that. And Cluemaster is back? Okay, cool. I like family drama in my comics, but I think this could have come off stronger if the book introduced us earlier to him and his relationship with Steph. At least an editor's note, we don't do those things here. At least an editor's note referencing where a new reader could learn about, please, please, you're asking too much. Where a new reader could learn about their history would be nice. I was pleasantly surprised reading the Blue Wall number two last month when there was an editor note referencing Gotham Central, and then I remembered I wasn't reading Batgirls. <laughs> yes, yes, those editor notes catch me off guard when I read them in other books as well. And as a follow-up, she says, I thought the annual was pretty good. It actually makes me want to read the next issue. Ha ha. Also, I feel like you might appreciate this conversation from Gotham Knights. It doesn't spoil any of the story or gameplay. Take care. How many times did Bruce try to fire you? Random. He only fired me like three times, tops. I think there was a point where it was weekly for me. Well, unlike you, I actually respected the role. Uh-huh, sure. That, uh, definitely tracks with what Bruce told me. Oh my gosh, yep. How many times did Barbara get fired? Unlimited. Every week? Every day, maybe? She's got to beat, beat Dick, probably. Thank you so much for that. I think I will probably, maybe put that audio in here well yes remember you can always comment on videos no video this episode but you can comment on those videos you can comment on the actual post on the batmanuniverse.net and you can tweet i think twitter is dying but if something's if i'm mentioned i usually see it and of course you can email me backgirl oracle at gmail.com when I come back, uh, no quickies. I'm just going to be tackling the Batgirls Annual 2022 as well as Batgirls number 13. But first, Zias's Radio Hour featuring, and there is a swears in here, but I probably on first listen, you won't hear it. It's 17 Going Under by Sam Fender. See you soon. was forever I remember snow videos Cold September's the distances we covered The fist fights on the beach The busies round us up Do it all again next week An embryonic love The first time that it's scarred Herself for someone crying like a child, and the boy you kicked Tom's head in still bugs me now. That's the thing in Oh, wow.
Welcome back. Now, Barbara does appear in some other books this month, but I just honestly didn't feel like covering them. So I am just going to look at the annual that comes out for Batgirls, as well as issue number 13. So Batgirls annual 2022, vice versa, or vice versa, part one. Story Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad, art Robbie Rodriguez. Thank you for returning. Colors Rico Renzi and letters Dave Sharp. We open in Burnside at the site of Alicia's soon-to-be Boba Bar and Cafe. Babs offers assistance and able bodies to help get it all set up. Elsewhere, Cass is at the Gotham Modern Museum making sketches as her mother, Lady Shiva, looms over her. Elsewhere again, Steph and Kyle walk after playing tennis and discuss their non-relationship again. And Kyle lets us know that a house in his neighborhood was recently robbed. We then see what the girls do in costume in a nice splash page, complete with some puns, because we don't want to forget that they're also crime fighters. At the soft opening of Alicia's Cafe, Babs, now in a wheelchair, lets the girls know that she is moving back to the clock tower, but the girls can stay in the loft and hopefully stay out of trouble. That night, they go to investigate the house that got robbed and find two chalk outlines of bodies not reported by the GCPD. Cass finds something and tells Steph that they need to go. 
now. Steph is about to comply when she hears some meowing and saves the cat from a tree. A grateful old woman gives her a coin for her trouble. And if only it were Clarion and Tico, but it's not. At the loft, Steph asks Cass why she was so worked up, and Cass shows her a piece of a blade with the emblem of the League of Assassins. She recalls how she thought she saw her mother at the art museum, but when she looked, she was gone, because apparently Cass is blind, since Shiva was standing literally right next to her. And this is, in fact, a point that's brought up in issue number 13. Cass has difficulty verbalizing her feelings, and Steph comes up with the idea that they write down everything they want to tell each other but aren't sure how, seal them in a capsule, and read them when the time is right. Sounds cute, but I have many questions about that whole thing. The girls hang out as Steph and Cass, not as Batgirls, and wish they could switch places for a day. They let a flip of a coin decide whether they could hack it, but the coin lands on its side. And this is the coin that was received by Steph from the woman with the cat that was rescued from the tree. In the morning, they wake up to a shocking realization that they have indeed switched bodies. They immediately go to see Babs, who asks whether this is a prank, and then after she realizes it's not, she proceeds to examine the coin. They update Babs on the date with Kyle or the non-date and the unreported dead bodies, then go off to speak with Officer Brooks as Babs works on the coin angle. Brooks, after being confused as to who these backrolls are, tells them there wasn't anything to find at the scene, but the couple were being watched by the police because they were selling prescription drugs and the police were hoping they could lead them to their supplier. A five-year-old survived the attack and somehow, despite being five, gave a pretty good enough description for an artist to, an artist to draw Shiva. So, you know, let me go down to the kindergarten classroom and see if I can get someone to describe... I don't know, a picture, maybe describe their mother good enough for a police sketch artist to draw. That seems reasonable. At the Batcave, Babs and Batman consider some alternatives to why Steph and Cass may or may not have switched bodies. She shows him the coin and asks if she can use his library. And after Babs shares some regrets and feelings of failure with Batman, he shows compassion and positive affirmation. At the 440 Club at the Hill, a ninja is looking for the Batgirls and annoys some guy who is a member of the Hill's Angels. The Batgirls arrive and take down the ninja as well as the gang, but the ninja is killed before they can get any information. Shiva appears in a helicopter and tells Cass, who's actually Steph, to get in. Then Steph, aka Cass, tries to come to an agreement with the gang, and as many unsuspecting girls do at bars and parties, please be careful and don't accept drinks from strangers. But hey, she does. She drinks a ginger ale that has been roofied. She also takes off her mask at that point, which is odd. Mother and daughter inside the helicopter, daughter with quotation marks, have a chat, and father and daughter, again quotation marks, also have a chat as Clue Master is revealed to have kidnapped one of the Batgirls. And this is all continued in Batgirls number 13. To begin at the beginning uh, with the cover, I enjoy it. You do have that parent-child theme going on. You have a lightning strike down the middle separating the two of them. Shiva looming over Steph who is in Cass's costume because it's Cass. And then Clue Master looming over Cass who is in Steph's costume which with this coloring actually more looks like Kate's costume just with yeah it looks more like a a red than a than a purple but yeah pretty cool nonetheless Batgirl body swap bonanza for some reason Batman is at the bottom of the issue cover that seems unnecessary as well as the clock tower and the internal art 
I am happy to say is good. It's we, we don't have the crazy wide-eyed Stephanie Brown, Robbie Rodriguez I'm a big fan of, back to kind of that um, street pop art or punk art, rock and roll, punk, punk rock and roll art, as I like to call it. So I'm happy to happy to see that again. It is really unusual for an annual to actually be part of the main story and lead into the next issue. We always expect annuals to be oversized, obviously, and have some superfluous purpose. But it never is actually like a part of the series necessarily it might connect to something or maybe a bigger event uh, within the family or in the dc universe but literally this is like issue 12.5 or it could have been issue 13 but oversized and then the next one be 14 so kind of strange i think that the one point that really i was fixating on and was flummoxed by is why barbara is moving out and leaving the girls you know the purpose of this book i thought was to have the three of them together all these back girls maybe with an oracle part-time a team at the very least barbara having a mentor but we are not getting that for some reason so it's almost like well yeah we're we stabilized that situation and so now we just want to focus on these two teenagers Mm, okay (laughs) it's unfortunate i mean barbara's in nightwing so i guess we'll still see her but it just seems like it defeats the purpose of what this book was going to do and then you know i also see the fact that they in my mind are still children living alone and you know some may argue they're crime fighters or back girls are trained etc but it's not just for the protection purposes that i'm talking about but, but i think there are psychological and emotional purposes to having them alone as well and yes they can kind of figure some things out together they have that lovely chat but there are some things that you don't learn on your own like someone has to teach you and i just feel like you know flip a few pages and cassandra does absolutely something that I tell many of my students before they go off to college that, you know, if you're going to drink, I, you know, I'm not the person to stop you, obviously. You need to be careful if that is the decision that you're going to make. But I absolutely am telling, like, always get your own drink, never put your drink down, like these cautions, because you can, it's very much like sex ed, right? You can be like, don't drink. But if you're telling them don't drink, then when they decide to, you left out all the other important things. So just saying that there are other aspects to being an adult, or being an adult presence with teenagers, or children, that once you remove that, they are missing a particular piece. And so I personally don't like that Barbara is leaving and that these two are, uh, it, it's, you know, one night is one thing, but if they're like living alone, shouldn't they be going to school also? It's like, it's a big slumber party with no stakes. That's not, no. Again, I ask you, I'm moving on from that. Again, I ask you, where's Alicia's wife? Do these writers know that Alicia is married? I mean, Babs is seemingly doing everything and filling in for the supportive role that a wife would or like a partner. Like she's there planning this opening, saying, hey, I can bring people in to help speed up this process, having a party. Good Lord. Where is Alicia's wife? Oh, man. 
I do love that Batman is not a jerk here. That conversation between Bruce and Barbara is lovely. It's it's something certainly that they can, that he understands well. So that's why I used, I think, the word compassion rather than empathy because he has, in fact, been there. And then, you know, instead of like saying, you know, do better, he says, you know, like basically that you're doing a great job there and, and gives her positive affirmation. So I do like that Batman is a pretty okay guy there. Even though I have been disagreeing with and I currently disagree with how writer, both in the past and the present, the vintage and the now, with how writers have been writing Cass and how she's actually speaking and the amount of vocabulary that she has, I think there should definitely be effort to form words at the very least. I mean, knowing vocab is one thing, being able to speak that, you know, there is, we know there is some sort of disconnect that she has. But then we have Steph and she switches into Cass's body. I felt like, should there not have also been difficulty for Steph to suddenly not be able to form some words or may not be able to pull some words from her vocabulary that she had in her own body with her own brain, but now she's in a different body, not spouting off sentences as if she were normal Steph. That could have been a really interesting story. And even Cass says, it's as if nothing really happened. It was just a a facial switch. And, and even Cass says a couple times, don't talk so much. I, I think it at least happens twice in this annual. I mentioned, of course, the art is back to being good. I do catch, I don't know if you guys agree, that Cass's hair seems to change length and style. Length, I think, is more the egregious error than style because obviously you can change hairstyle, but it does seem like short to long. I wonder why we are rehashing the zoo conversation between Kyle and Steph. And the tennis conversation is the rehash of the zoo conversation. That are we in a relationship? You know, I'm not really there for, I'm not there emotionally. I just got off of something. I don't really have time for it. And then the other person agrees. I'm like, yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden they're holding hands. I'm just super confused. Why are we doing this again? We had it a couple issues ago with maps and then also mixed signals holding hands. I personally would think that's a bit, you know, uh, holding hands. Have I spoken about this on this podcast? Hands, holding hands. I feel like it's very intimate, very intimate. I, I talked about this a lot on Dear Reader, season one, because moments of, and in particular, right after Bertha attempts to kill Mr. Rochester by burning his bed and Jane helps him out, he shakes her hand and holds onto it and it's like, oh, <gasps> I mean, especially, you know, in a sexually repressed society, but holding hands is, I feel like it's it's a very intimate thing. And so, though there's some scenes that, you know, in anime and films and TV shows and things, when when a couple holds hands, my butterflies, they they start floating around. So all that to mean, basically, that... Mixed signals, mixed signals. Actually, I was talking to Donovan briefly about this particular annual, and he mentioned that the Batman Two-Face one-shot by Mariko Tamaki, within that issue, there was an important conversation between Batman and Stephanie. And I asked him why that conversation wouldn't have taken place in the Batgirl's book. And he said, quote, because it isn't goofy, which he brings up inadvertently a good point because should we not be taking this Batgirl's book seriously? Is it not worth worthwhile that these characters might be progressing or having serious conversations or serious life events are happening, but they're not happening in this book? I mean, that just makes it seem like I'm reading a book that has no bearing on 
continuity whatsoever or these characters. And that's very frustrating. We don't often see, I think, supernatural and magical subplots where Barbara is concerned. After I read this, I sort of sat there thinking about how often I have seen this. Batwoman is very much that person that we see just because of the DEO and what she had been surrounded with. So I feel like she's always the go-to person for these sorts of plots. Batman, of course, got into it a bit. I can't remember that book that was sort of, for me, came out of left field Maybe during the New 52 about like Gotham. Man, I can't remember what that was called. Basically like a a side cop, um, a side department for supernatural things. Man, and I, I enjoyed it. I thought this is really interesting. I like this. Feels weird to have Batman engaged in this sort of thing, though we do know that he is close with Satana, so he does. Sometimes it happens. But, you know, I think of Clarion and Stephanie's series and Barbara turning to Snake, but yeah, it, it doesn't often happen here. And so I think initially when I was reading this, I thought, oh, you know, which sounds silly, but it, it's not as realistic because, you know, Barbara. As a whole, and I think the Batgirl title in general is more down to earth, which which is why I like that character, because there are certainly things that we would most often encounter as a, a normal human being. But we'll see what happens there. I think that's all I have to say about the annuals. I think I'm going to give it a 7.5 out of 10 cup nudes. And of course, we're moving on to 13 as we see this particular body swapping arc end, but we are not really done with the actual story. So this is Backrolls 13, Vice Versa, Part 2. Story, Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad, Art, Colors, and Letters, Jonathan Case. After making Cass change outfits like she's in an X-Men comic with Arcade, Shiva and Cass, really Stephanie, dine like they're a healthy, normal family. Shiva just wants some mother-daughter time, and she and the readers both wonder whether Cass saw her in the art museum. We find out that Cass is a vegetarian, which is interesting, perhaps because of her no-one-dies rule. Maybe. Maybe. No bunny dies. No cow. No chicken. No fish but she is killing plants. Shiva talks about the League of Assassins and that she hovers just in case they get out of control. So just like any parent, I suppose, Cass says people died and Shiva argues she intervened because of that little girl, then goes after Cass with a knife because she knows it isn't really her daughter. Meanwhile, Steph, really Cass, is trussed up like a pig in the backseat of Clue Master's car as he talks about how he died, but not really, and that he's been watching her and leaving clues, which we all must have been missing. No, seriously, if I go back through these issues, will I be able to spot these clues or is this a lie and there was no lead up to this whatsoever? I don't know. Shana, if you do, in fact, reread the first six issues, let me know if you spot any of these clues. Babs is in Bruce's library when non-Batchurk brings her some expensive covfefe and she explains she found the sigil on the coin in a manuscript and it is magical. As if we couldn't guess, Barbara gosh, you have a PhD. Bruce suspected, so he called in Zatanna to assist them. Cass and Shiva continue fighting with Steph, attempting to explain what happened and also holding her own rather well. Shiva critiques Steph's garrulousness, which... I've already talked about that. Cluemaster drives Steph slash Cass to a cabin in the woods, which apparently should be familiar. Babs and Bruce are suddenly in their costumes as Satana summons an image of all the people who have touched the coin. Looks like Constantine, a green person, which if anyone can tell me who that green person is, please let me know. And Steph plus Dame Kamedoza. The bees, I said, meaning Batman and Batgirl, go off in search of the final person. 
Shiva tells Cass slash Steph how she built Cal... <laughs> Gosh, I forgot about this. How she built Cass out of clay and put all of these negative aspects inside of the mold so that she would grow up to be a better clay person than Shiva. You need to reread it to actually... Uh, make sense of all that but anyways Cass and Steph speaks to her emotions and tells her of who Cass is and that she didn't need molding or further molding and apparently Shiva loves her and is proud of her but can't tell her dysfunctional am I right Batgirl and Batman find this dame and Babs quickly realizes that the name is an anagram for Madame Zodiac Batman seems to take it very casually Zodiac says it is just for a day and it should be ending any time now Cass returns in her own body Shiva says they could rule the league together but Cass doesn't have time for that goes off in search of Steph, who is now in her own body with her father in front of her. Next, the rest is silence. As I was reading that, I realized how weird Batman is written in this particular issue. And it's like when you're watching, it could be a good film, could be a bad film, could be a TV show, but extras, if they like stand there and they're in frame, but there are no reactions to certain things. Like Batman, that's how he is in this particular one. Like he brings coffee, Barbara's working hard, and she's like, oh my gosh, I think, you know, it's magical. And then he says, you know, I thought it was magical. That's why I got Zatanna. Why wouldn't you have done that beforehand and then later on she's like it's madame zodiac he's like i figured it was madame zodiac yep 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 it's very bizarre the art is different than the previous one i think it's different in general feels very old timey feels like new frontier style and i like it some characters i don't like their design barbara's design i don't like and satana's design i don't like but overall uh, i think it's good art better than what we had been seeing steph in cassandra's body is holding her own again against shiva more than i would have thought possible especially since a point has already been made that she doesn't have cass's micro expression abilities and so i wonder if the writers at you know sat down at all and discussed if someone were to swap bodies with somebody else what does that exactly mean what features of that person are carried over which ones remain abilities etc it seems a bit wishy-washy here there's a reference to background number 25 from 2002 i can hardly believe it but it <laughs> but moving on from that is it really true that shiva has based her whole identity on cassandra and she poured everything into her so she would be better than her is that really what we gained like that is that the knowledge that we gained? Is that how you would describe Cass from two thousand two or Shiva making her? Like she barely played any part in her life. Is this a new Cassandra sort of backstory here? Um, and I did. Sorry to bring you back, but the the cover I like the cover, and just you've got Cass and Stephanie literally like overlapping each other and the their separate colors are merging and becoming one person and you kind of are trying to figure out who's who and all of that and back to the the crazy the crazy covers you almost wish that you could have 3d glasses in order to see who is who it is a bit odd that barbara and bruce suddenly appear in costume just one scene later when they were not in costume i suppose if i think about it zatanna could have done it but we don't see it so it just happens in off panel land zatanna and madame xanadu where has this come from i don't it's it just seems like it's ballooned out of control again zatanna i love seeing zatanna but i don't 
really associate her with Barbara. I associate her with Bruce. And then Madame Xanadu just wanted her fun, kicks and giggles. Just seems like a very bizarre expansion to bad girls. And could there have not been, you know, other people, especially coming from Mr. Fun and a serial killer and all that business. This is where we go. I don't fully understand the League of Assassins subplot, but I expect that might be because I'm not reading Shiva outside of this book. And then, you know, of course, we had that mini Birds of Prey, which I think is mentioned at one point as if it was great when it was just okay. But yeah, I don't know what the status is. So someone will have to fill me in. But I thought that she was in control of them, but it doesn't seem like it. It's because she killed her own man. So she's watching them in case they get out of control and will kill them off if they do. But then she also says that we could take control of them and lead them. I'm wondering if they would even listen to her necessarily. So, yeah, I just don't know. So any of you listeners out there who are reading things about the League of Assassins and the current status quo. I'm sorry that I am woefully ignorant of that. But please, yeah, write in and let me know what is going on. I'm going to give this the same grade, 7.5 out of 10 cup nudes. I, you know, I, it was mostly fun, I think. I, I think it would have been fun had maybe the parents not been involved. And I don't know, like just a zany adventure of mistaken identities occurring. You know, I had, I, you know, I always say this and it sounds weird when I say it, but I love to have students that were twins, whether they were fraternal or identical. And it was just, yeah, it was just fun to see the relationships. And they always seemed I, like all of them I used, used to have pretty good relationships with. And one, I've only had two identical twins I think two pairs of them. One of them would switch every April Fools and go to each other's classes. And of course, if you know them really well, you wouldn't be you wouldn't be confused or tricked by that. But it was still a lot of fun to have that happen because it was still like weird. Like you know, you expect to be engaging with this person in this environment, but it's actually the other person. But it could have been, you know, something fun like that. So I, I feel like it was fun enough, but it 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 could have been better. I think there was just too much going on because you want the stakes higher in regards to these two people, Shiva and Cluemaster, that are included in this. So there's almost there's a cap to how much fun you can have when you have those two people involved. So, okay, I apologize just that maybe I'm not as super excited and bubbly and exuberant. I don't know all of these synonyms in doing the reviews and getting that energy out. Just have some ennui, but hopefully in January I'll be back and be more excited to do the quickies and the back rolls and everything. So, but hey, I'm still producing content and you really can't accuse me of not being real. So there you go. No anime watch list this time. I was trying to think if I had anything. No, I did. I have found a couple of things that I want to watch. A couple films that are now out that I can watch, but nothing to recommend yet because I haven't watched them. And finally, literature recommendation. I did, yes, in my course, my 70, what is it? EDIS 7720, which is understanding the code, morphology, and orthology, and phonology. I read Speech to Print Language Essentials for Teachers by Louisa Cook Motes, and I came out of that class 
pat on my back with an A, perhaps an A plus, learned a great deal. And I enjoy, you know, I enjoy those. Those, I have to work hard at those because of all the terms and things. And my gosh, listing phonemes and what are some spelling rules and syllable rules and all that stuff. But I'm very happy that uh, I'm taking these courses. I like those more than the curriculum stuff just because of curriculum and stuff that I've been doing for a long time, for 10 plus years. I read Queen's Hope by E.K. Johnston, which is the third in the trilogy following Padme. It was okay. I feel like it was the weakest of the three, but you did get to see what quote-unquote married life is with Anakin, and I, I think it just goes to show the strength of Padme's character, which may not have come through as much in the films, but that she is, even though she is married, she is wanting to still be a senator and help people and everything, so she's not going to change her life just because of you know, having a new addition to her life or a, a new dimension to her life. I reread The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood after years, years. And you can catch that on the January episode of Required Reading. It was supposed to be a w, double revenge book. Revenge for me, revenge for Tom. But uh, well, I guess you'll find out if I liked it or not, if it, if it was revenge. And then finally, Ithaca by Claire North, which was, so I found this accidentally when I visited Right Round Shoot in Cape Cod, we went to a bookstore and I found this and I thought, oh my goodness, another one that's in the perspective of one of these epic women. So I thought, oh, it must be in the perspective of Penelope. And even like the book jacket is talking about Penelope and all that stuff while Odysseus is away. The suitors are on the island, all that stuff. A couple chapters in, you find out that the narrator is none other than that petty woman Juno, a.k.a. Hera. So I've got to go through 300 pages listening to her voice, basically. And, you know, one could have empathy for Juno and Hera. She's been uh, cheated on multiple times by her brother-husband. But she did my guy Aeneas dirty, so I, I shan't forgive her for that. She did Dido dirty. She never should have embarked on that deal with Venus and basically indirectly led to Dido's death and downfall. And then that was Ace into Dombrota. She also did my girl Io dirty. You know, it's one thing that Zeus slash Jupiter is raping all these women, but you, as one of the goddesses of basically been protector of women and childbirth and things like that and mothers, you should be protecting her rather than in a jealous rage deciding to attack Io in her new form as Cal. Now, Io's story did have a happy ending, but that's just awful. It's just awful. And so I didn't really want to read that petty woman's voice for 300 pages, but I made it. There is apparently a sequel out, but I don't think I can do it. I just don't think I can do it. Odysseus did not come home at the end of this book, so who even knows? But anyways... There you go. You know, you take those recommendations as you want. If you want to listen to Juno slash Hera go on and on, you go right ahead. Okay, well, this is it for the 13th anniversary. Thank you. Sorry it wasn't super exciting. I don't even have a kazoo or one of those little party maker things. Remember, you can send any questions or comments to BatgirlTheOracle at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter for as long as Twitter lasts at BatgirlTheOracle. Subscribe to the show on YouTube for an uncut version. Sorry, there's no uncut version for this episode. And follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. And support TBU by subscribing to Patreon. 
Once again, thanks to My High Comics for sponsoring Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Thank you for following me for 13 years. Whether you hop on, hop off, you just come on for a bit. Maybe you just listen to some of those random episodes of Shippers or interviews or things like that. I appreciate you. And, you know, thanks for sticking in a really, really awful year. I do appreciate that as well. Here's hoping that 2023 is better. <laughs> okay, well, until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you? <laughs>